Chapter 14 of Where Love Is by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 14 The Bubble Reputation. The Princess had the affability to inform Mrs. Hardacre that it was a charming party, and Mrs. Hardacre felt that she had not lived in vain. Henceforth she would be of the innermost circle of the elect of the county. Exclusive front doors would open respectfully to her. She would be consulted on matters appertaining to social polity. She would be a personage. She would also make her neighbour, Lady Fitzhubert, sick with envy. A malignant greenness on that lady's face she noted with a thrill of pure happiness, and she smilingly frustrated all her manoeuvres to get presented to Her Serene Highness. She presented her rival instead to Jimmy. "'My dear Lady Fitzherbert, let me introduce Mr. Padgate, who is painting the dear Princess's portrait. Mr. Padgate is staying with us.' Whereby Mrs. Hardacre conveyed the impression that Hedden Court and Chilton Towers contained just one family party, the members of which ran in and out of either house indiscriminately. It may be mentioned that Jimmy did not get on particularly well with Lady Fitzhubert. He even confided afterwards to Connie Deering his suspicion that now and again members of the aristocracy were lacking in true urbanity. By declaring the garden party to be charming, the Princess only did justice to the combined efforts of the Hardacres and Providence. The warm, golden weather, and the chance of meeting august personages, had brought guests from far and near. The lawns were bright with colour and resonant with talk. A red-coated band played on the terrace. Between the items of music, Guignol, housed in the Greek temple, with the portico for a proscenium, performed his rogueries to the delight of hastily assembling audiences. Immediately below, a long, white-covered table gleamed with silver tea-urns and china, and all the paraphernalia of refreshments. At the other end of the lawn sat the august personages, surrounded by the elect. Among these was Morland. But for him neither blue September skies nor amiable duchesses had any charm. To the man of easy living had come the sudden shock of tragedy, and the music and the teacups and the flatteries seemed parts of a ghastly farce. The paragraph he had read in the paper that morning obsessed him. The hours had seemed one long shudder against which he vainly braced his nerves. He had loved the poor girl in his facile way. The news in itself was enough to bring him face to face with the elementals. But there was another terror added. The chance word of a laughing woman had put him on the rack of anxiety. Getting out of the train at Cosford, she had seen the queerest figure of a man step onto the platform with the face of Peter the Hermit and the costume of Mr. Stiggins. Morland's first impulse had been to retreat precipitately from Cosford and take the next train to London, whither he ought to have gone that morning. The tradition-bred Englishman's distaste for craven flight kept him irresolutely hanging round the Duchess. He thought of whispering a private word to Jimmy. But Jimmy was far away, being introduced here and there, apparently enjoying considerable popularity. Besides, the whisper would involve the tale of the newspaper paragraph, and Morland shrank from confiding such news to Jimmy. No one on earth must know it save his legal adviser, an impersonal instrument of protection. He did what he had done once during five horrible weeks at Oxford, when an Abingdon barmaid threatened him with a breach of promise action. He did nothing, and trusted to luck. Happy chance brought to light the fact that she was already married. 
happy chance might save him again. Beyond the mere commonplaces of civility, he had exchanged no words that day with Norma. Moved by an irritating feeling of shame, coupled with a certain repugnance of the flesh, he had deliberately avoided her, and his preoccupation had not allowed him to perceive that the avoidance was reciprocated. When they happened to meet in their movements among the guests, they smiled at each other mechanically, and went their respective ways. Once, during the afternoon, Mr. Hardacre, red and fussy, took him aside. "'I've just heard a couple of infernal old cats talking of Norma and that fellow Weaver. There they are together now. Will you give Norma a hint, or shall I?' Morland looked up, and saw the pair on the terrace, midway between the band and the Guignolde audience. "'I'm glad she's got somebody to amuse her,' he said, turning away. He was almost grateful to Weaver for taking Norma off his hands. Meanwhile, Jimmy was continuing to find life full of agreeable surprises. Lady Fitzhubert was not the only lady to whom he was presented as the Mr. Padgate who was painting the princess's portrait. Mrs. Hardacre waved the personal grudge and flourished him tactfully in the face of the county, and the county accepted him with unquestioning ingenuousness. He was pointed out as a notability, became the well-known portrait painter, the celebrated artist, the James Padgate, and thus achieved the bubble reputation. A guest, who was surreptitiously reporting the garden party for the local paper, took eager notes of the personal appearance of the eminent man, and, being a woman of the world, professed familiarity with his works. For the first time in his life he found himself a person of importance. The fact of his easy inclusion in the charmed circle cast a glamour over the crudities of the gala costume designed and furbished up with so much anxious thought by Aline, and people, who are kindly as a rule when their attention is diverted from the trivial, looked only at his face, and were attracted to the man himself. Only Lady Fitzhubert, who had private reasons for frigidity, treated him in an unbecoming manner. Other fair ladies smiled sweetly upon him, and spread abroad tales of his niceness, and thus helped in the launching of him as a fashionable portrait-painter upon the gay world. He had a brief interlude of talk with Norma by the refreshment-table. "'I hope you're not being too much bored by all this,' she said in her society manner. "'Bored!' he cried. "'It's delightful!' "'What about the hollow world where imagination doth not corrupt, and enthusiasms do not break in and steal?' "'It's a phantom dust-heap for inept epigrams.' I don't believe it exists. You must preach a gospel one day and give it the lie the next, she said half seriously, for then I won't know what to believe. You don't seem to realise your responsibilities. He echoed the last word in some surprise. Norma broke into a little nervous laugh. You don't suppose you can go about without affecting your fellow creatures? It is well that you don't know what a disturbing element you are. She turned her head away and closed her eyes for a second or two, for the words she had overheard there by the hedge last evening rang in her ears. Perhaps it would have been well for Jimmy if he had known. Before he had time to reply, she recovered herself, and added quickly, "'I'm glad you are enjoying yourself.' "'How can I help it when everyone is so kind to me?' he said brightly. "'I came down here an obscure painter, a veritable pictor ignotus, and all your friends are as charming to me as if I were the President of the Royal Academy. Connie Deering came up with a message for Norma, and carried her off to the house. 
"'How does Jimmy like being lionized? she asked on the way. Norma repeated his last speech. "'He hasn't any idea of the people's motives,' she added somewhat hysterically. Oh, "'The man is half fool, half angel. "'And altogether a man. Don't you make any mistake about that?' said Connie, with a pretty air of finality. "'You don't know as much about him as I do.' "'I'm not so sure about that,' said Norma. "'I am,' said Connie. Jimmy was wandering away from the refreshment table when Theodore Weaver stopped him. "'That's a famous portrait of yours, Mr. Padgate. I saw it today after lunch. I offer you my congratulations.' Jimmy thanked him, said modestly that he hoped it was a good likeness. "'Too good by a long chalk,' laughed the American. "'A serene skimflint doesn't deserve it. I bet you she beat you down like a market-woman haggling for fish.' Jimmy stuck his hands on his hips and laughed. "'You don't deny it. You shouldn't have let her. She's rolling in money.' "'I'm afraid one doesn't bother much with the commercial side of things,' said Jimmy. "'That's where you make the mistake. Money is money, and it is better in one's own pockets than in anybody else's. But that's not what I wanted to speak to you about. I wonder if you would let me have the pleasure of calling to your studio some day. I'm collecting a few pictures, and I should regard it as a privilege to be allowed to look round yours.' Jimmy having no visiting cards, scribbled the address on the back of an envelope. He would be delighted to see Mr. Weaver any time he was passing through London. Weaver bowed, and turned to greet a passing acquaintance, leaving a happy artist. A miracle had happened. The star of his fortunes had arisen. A week ago it was below the horizon, shedding a faint, hopeful glimmer in the sky. Now it shone bright overhead, the days of struggle and disappointment were over. He had come into his kingdom of recognition. All had happened to-day. The princess's promise of another and more illustrious royal portrait, the sudden leap into fame, the patronage of the American financier. One has to be the poor artist with his youth, one record of desperate endeavour, behind him, to know what these things mean. The delicate flattery of strange women— however commonplace or contemptible it may be to the successful, was a new, rare thing to Jimmy, and appeased an unknown hunger. The prospect of good work done and delivered to the world, without sordid, heart-breaking bargainings, shimmered before him like a paradise. Old habit made him long for Aline. How pleased the child would be when she heard the glad news! He saw the joy on her bright face, and heard her clap her hands together, and he smiled. He would return to her a conqueror, having won the prizes she had so often wept for, name and fame and fortune. The band was playing the wedding march from Lohengrin. By chance, as he was no musician, he recognised it. "'Aline shall have a wedding dress from Paris,' he said half aloud, and he smiled again. The world had never been so beautiful.' He embraced all of it that was visible in a happy, sweeping glance. Then, with the swiftness of lightning, the smile on his face changed into consternation. For a moment he stood stock-still, staring at the sudden figure of a man. It was Stone, the mad orator of Hyde Park. There was no possibility of mistaking him at a distance of fifteen or twenty yards. He wore the same rusty black frock-coat and trousers, the same dirty collar and narrow black tie, the same shapeless clerical hat. His long neck above the collar looked raw and scabious like a vulture's. In his hand he carried a folded newspaper. 
he had suddenly emerged upon the end of the terrace from the front entrance, and was descending the steps that led down to the tennis-lawn. If he walked straight on, he would come to the group surrounding the Princess and the Duchess of Wiltshire. Two or three people were already eyeing him curiously. Morland's strange dread of the man flashed upon Jimmy. He hurried forward to meet him. Of what he was about to do he had no definite idea. Perhaps he could head Stone off, take him away from the grounds on the pretext of listening to his grievances. At any rate, a scandal must be avoided. As he drew near, he observed Morland, who had been bending down in conversation with the Duchess, rise and unexpectedly recognise Stone. A man-servant bearing a small tray with some teacups ran up to the extraordinary intruder, who waved him away impatiently. The servant put down his tray and caught him by the arm. "'You have no business here.' Stone shook himself free. "'I have. Where is Mr. Rendell? Tell him I have to speak with him.' "'There is no such person here,' said the servant. "'Be off.' Jimmy reached the spot, as a few of the nearer guests were beginning to take a surprised interest in the altercation. Morland came forward from behind the Duchess's chair, and cast a swift glance at Jimmy. "'If you don't go, I shall make you,' said the servant, preparing to execute his threat. The man looked dangerous. "'I must see Mr. David Rendell,' he cried, beginning to struggle. Jimmy drew the servant away. "'I know this gentleman,' he said quietly. "'Mr. Stone, Mr. Rendell is not here, but if you will come with me, I will listen to you, and tell him anything you have to say.' Mr. Hardacre, who had seen the scuffle from a distance, came up in a fluster. "'What's all this? What's all this? Who is this creature? Please go away.' He began to hustle the man. "'Stop! He's an acquaintance of Badgate's,' said Morland huskily. There was a short pause. Stone stared around at the well-dressed men and women, at the seated figures of the Princess and the Duchess, at the servant who had picked up the tray, at the band who was still playing the wedding march from Lohengrin, at the red-faced little blustering man, at the beautiful cool setting of green, and the look in his eyes was that of one who saw none of these things. Morland edged to Jimmy's side. "'For God's sake, get him away!' he said in a low voice. Jimmy nodded and touched the man's arm. "'Come,' said he. "'Yes, please take him off. What the dickens does he want?' said Mr. Hardacre. Stone turned his burning eyes upon him. "'I have come to find an infamous seducer,' he replied, with a melodramatic intensity that would have been ludicrous had his face not been so ghastly. "'His name is Rendell.' There was a shiver of interest in the crowd. "'Varsager?' the princess whispered to her neighbour. Jimmy again tried to lead Stone away, but the distraught creature seemed lost in thought and looked at him fixedly. "'I have seen you before,' he said at last. "'Of course you have,' said Jimmy, "'in Hyde Park. Don't you remember?' Suddenly, with a wrench of his hands, he tore an unmounted photograph from the folded newspaper and threw it on the ground. His eyes blazed. "'I thought I should find him. One of you is David Rendell. It is not your real name. That I know. Which of you is it?' Jimmy had sprung upon the photograph. Instinct, rather than the evidence of sight, told him that it was an amateur portrait of himself and Morland— taken one idle afternoon in the studio by young Tony Merriweather. It had hardly lain the fraction of a second on the ground, but to Jimmy it seemed as if the two figures had flashed clear upon the sight of all the bystanders. He glanced quickly at Morland, who stood quite still now with stony face and averted eyes. He too had recognised the photograph, and he cursed himself for a fool for having given it to the girl. 
He had had it loose in his pocket. She had pleaded for it. She had no likeness of him at all. He was paying now for his imprudent folly. Like Jimmy, he feared lest others should have recognised the photograph. But he trusted again to chance. Jimmy had undertaken the unpleasant business, and his wit could possibly save the situation. Jimmy did not hesitate. A man is as God made him, heart and brain. To his impulsive imagination the photograph would be proof positive for the world that one of the two was the infamous seducer. It did not occur to him to brazen the man out, to send him about his business. Wherein lies the pathos of simple-mindedness? The decisive moment had come. To Morland, exposure would mean loss of career, and, as he conceived it, loss of Norma. And to the beloved woman it would mean misery and heartbreak. So he committed an heroic folly. "'Well, I am Rendell,' he said in a loud voice. "'What then?' Heedless of shocked whisperings and confused voices, among which rose a virtuously indignant, "'Great heavens!' from Mrs. Hardacre. He moved away quickly towards the slope, motioning Stone to follow. But Stone remained where he stood, and pointed at Jimmy with lean, outstretched finger, and lifted up his voice in crazy rhetoric, which was heard above the wedding march. No one tried to stop him. It was too odd, too interesting, too dramatic. "'The world shall know the tale of your lust, and the sun shall not go down upon your iniquity.' Under false promises you betrayed the sweetest flower in God's garden. Basely you taunted her in her hour of need. Murder and suicide are on your head. There is the record for all who wish to read it. Read it, he cried, flinging the newspaper at Mrs. Hargraker's feet. Read how she killed her newborn babe, the child of this devil, and then hanged herself. Jimmy came two or three steps forward. Stop this mad foolery, he cried. Stone glared at him for a fraction of a second, thrust his hand into the breast-pocket of his frock-coat, drew out a revolver, and shot him. Jimmy staggered as a streak of fire passed through him and swung round. The women shrieked and rushed together behind the princess and the duchess, who remained calmly seated. The men, with one impulse, sprang forward to seize the madman. But as he leaped aside and threatened his assailants with his revolver, they hung back. The band stopped short at the middle of a bar. Norma, and Connie Deering, and one or two others who had been in the house, unaware of the commotion of the last few minutes, ran out on the terrace as they heard the shot and the sudden cessation of the band. They saw the crowd of frightened, nervous people below, and the grotesque figure in his rusty black pointing the pistol. And they saw Jimmy march up to him, and in a dead silence they heard him say, "'Give me that revolver. What is a silly fool like you doing with firearms? You can hit a haystack at a yard's distance. Give it to me, I say.' The man's arm was outstretched, and the pistol was aimed point-blank at Jimmy. Connie Deering gripped Norma's arm, and Norma, feeling faint, grew white to the lips. "'Give it to me,' said Jimmy again. The man wavered. His arm drooped slightly. With the action of one who takes a dangerous thing from a child, Jimmy quietly wrenched the revolver from his grasp. Norma gave a gasp of relief and began to laugh foolishly. Connie clapped her hands in excitement. "'Didn't I tell you he was a man? "'By heavens, the only one in the lot!' "'Jimmy pointed towards the terrace steps. "'Go!' he said. "'But there was a rush now to seize the disarmed stone, "'the red coats of the bandsmen mingling with the black of the guests. "'Jimmy, with a curious flame through his shoulder "'and a swimming in his head, swerved aside. "'Morland ran up with a white face. 
"'My God, he's hit you. I thought he'd missed.' "'No,' said Jimmy, smiling at the reading scene. "'I'm all right. Keep the photograph. It was silly to give one's photograph away. I always was a fool.' Morland pocketed the unmounted print. He tried to utter a word of thanks, but the eyes of the scared and scandalised crowd a few steps away were upon them, and many were listening. For a moment, during the madman's crazy indictment of Jimmy, for the horrible facts were only too true, he had had the generous impulse to come forward and at all costs save his friend. But he had hesitated. The shot had been fired, the dramatic little scene had followed. To proclaim Jimmy's innocence and his own guilt now would be an anticlimax. It was too late. He would take another opportunity of exonerating Jimmy. So he stood helpless before him, and Jimmy, feeling fainter and fainter, protested that he was not hurt. They stood a bit apart from the rest. By this time men and women had flocked from all quarters, and practically the whole party had assembled on the tennis lawn. Norma still stood with Connie on the terrace, her hand on her heart. A small group clustered round a man who had picked up the newspaper, and was reading aloud the ghastly paragraph marked by stone in blue pencil. The Hardacres were wringing their hands before a stony-faced princess and an indignant duchess, who announced their intention of immediate departure. Everyone told everyone else the facts he or she had managed to gather. Human nature and the morbidly stimulated imagination of naturally unimaginative people invented atrocious details. Jimmy's new-born fame as a painter was quickly merged into hideous notoriety. His star must have been Lucifer, so swift was its fall. Mr. Hardacre left his wife's side and dragged Morland a step or two away, and whispered excitedly, "'What a scandal! What a hell of a scandal! Before royalty, too! It'll be the death of us! The damn fellow must go! You must tear him out of the house!' "'He's it! Look at him!' exclaimed Morland. Jimmy heard his host's whisper in a dream. It seemed a hoarse voice, very, very far off. He laughed in an idiotic way, waved his hand to the gyrating crowd, and stumbled a few yards towards the slope. The world swam into darkness, and he fell heavily on his face. Then, to the amazement of the county, Norma, with a ringing cry, rushed down the slope and threw herself beside Jimmy's body and put his head on her lap. And there she stayed, until they dragged her away, uttering the queer, whimpering exclamations of a woman suddenly stricken with great terror. She thought Jimmy was dead. End of chapter 14